This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. We used to do things like go to conferences in other cities and interact with people. I don't believe you. PubMed is not a social media platform. (laughs) Yet. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we share a step-by-step guide to getting started with academic Twitter. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 168. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Erneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Happy New Year, Dan. Happy New Year to you. New Year, new changes. Am I right? That's right, Dan. It's been a whirlwind on my end. Uh, I relocated my family up to Maryland, um, but I'm actually not in Maryland right now. Yeah, you don't look like you're in Maryland. No, too cold up there, so we are actually in Florida for the week visiting some family, and it is nice and in the 70s here, which is fantastic. You did know before you moved that Maryland is north of North Carolina, right? That was You were made aware of that? Well, it's confusing because North Carolina has North in the title. So I think I feel I was, I should have researched that a little better. I I can see how you get confused. We're excited about this next chapter, Dan, and also uh, uh, glad that the podcast can continue with all the practice we got recording remotely for two years. Absolutely. Well, well, we wish you good luck in in getting settled in and new, new ventures started up there. How are you celebrating, Josh? What is your ethanol this week? Well, Dan... For some reason, anytime I am within about two miles of a beach, I have this craving for a Corona with lime. So The advertising works. That's what I've been drinking this week. Uh, it does, Dan. That is probably my favorite supermarket beer is just a Corona with a lime wedge. And so I've been having one of those each night that I've been here. And are you the guy who pushes it in and turns the bottle upside down? How do you handle the lime? That's a party trick, Dan. No, you no, don't no. Do it. I don't do that. I put the put the lime in. See, here's why you don't need to, Dan. You put the lime in, and it floats up to the neck, right? So all the beer that you're consuming flows through the lime wedge. So it's really kind of pointless to tip the bottle up, and then you know you put your thumb on it, spews everywhere, and it, it no, does. That's why do I that. was asking. It does doesn't seem like a great idea to me, but I've seen it many times. I don't tip the bottle, and I don't associate with people who do. <laughs> is that right? You draw a hard line at that. <laughs> People have to have standards somewhere, Dan. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're celebrating. I'm glad you're near the beach. I'm a little bit jealous. We're uh, supposed to get some wintry mix this week. So I will be thinking of a Corona with lime, even though I don't think I have one in the fridge. There you go, Dan. Better go get it now, along with your milk and bread. Exactly. Hey, Dan, I want to thank our friends at Promega It's that time of year when many of us realize graduation is right around the corner. Whether you're continuing in your academic journey or you're looking for opportunities outside of academia, make sure you have the tools and skills you need to find the right next step. From job interviews to individual development plans, the ProMega Student Resource Center is your go-to guide to navigating those tough decisions. You can visit www.promega.com slash HelloPhD to learn more. And Josh... I have been derelict in announcing some of our new patrons over the last couple of weeks. And so uh, I want to mention all the people that have have contributed and supported us. Uh, They are now in the Slack channel, so I've been chatting with them. 
So I want to go ahead and thank Vanessa, Nicole, Sung Yi, Jack, and Hervey. Thank you so much for your support. And we are happy to have you aboard the Slack channel. And if other people want to join that channel, um, just go to patreon.com slash hellophd or hellophd.com and click the Become a Patron button and we will add you right away. Yeah, it's been great getting to know some folks on there. And I realized uh, I had Slack messed up on my phone, but I'm back in the Slack channel as well. So it's been nice getting to know some of these new folks. Lots of catching up to do, Josh. All right, Dan, let's get on to our topic of the week. All right, Dan, I am really impressed that you brought this topic to my attention, uh, given the fact that I think you're still an egg on Twitter. I will always be an egg. Actually, I should check uh, because I don't know. I don't, if I'm I don't think an it's egg. an egg anymore. Maybe we should explain that because I don't know if uh, in newer iterations of Twitter, at least in the older days, older days being like two or three years ago, um, a new Twitter account with no profile picture defaulted to. Um, a little drawing of an egg. I think it's something else now, but Dan, you were notoriously an egg for a very long time. Well, now I have a picture of me uh, made in the style of The Simpsons. So I have graduated, but I am still not following the best practices for sure. I also haven't posted on Twitter in a little while. So um, this, I think this episode is also for me, Josh. Well, that is why we are not taking your advice um, on leading this episode, Dan, but instead we are going to take the advice of Sarah Moharad, who posted a really fantastic beginner's guide to joining academic Twitter, um, and we'll put, we'll put a link to her article um, in our show notes, but we're going to just go through this. And Dan, you know, we did an, we did an episode a while back on how you can utilize Twitter to enhance your scientific network. But in the world of technology and social media, things change pretty quickly. So I think, one, it's a good time just to revisit this topic because it's been a while. But two, I think it's it's good to hear from some other voices who are out there using Twitter as a science communicator um, to get a fresh perspective in 2021. Yeah, I'll just recap for people that, that and we'll link to the show in the show notes, but this, it was episode 69 back in 2017 that we talked about this. Um, and it was called five ways scientists should be using Twitter. And it was about how you keep up with research in your field or promote your own work or build your network to find a job, uh, attend conferences behind the conference and support causes you believe in. Those were some of the items that we discussed, but I don't know that we went into the detail that people might need to get started. And so I think this is a great opportunity to do that. Uh, Sarah's guide is really thorough and she, covers some things that I hadn't thought about. And so I really appreciated uh, this article. So let's let's walk through it. All right. So the first tip that Sarah gives is really the best place to start. And that has to do with choosing your Twitter handle. So this is going to be what you're going to be known as on Twitter, your Twitter account name, uh, how people will direct messages to you and how messages from you will show up. Super Lab Ninja 97762358 is that the right <laughs> yeah, a handle? name a name with like eight numbers after it is not a good recipe for success and probably indicates you're a troll. Guilty as charged, Josh. <laughs> Sarah says, choose a handle that you will be happy with five years from now. And I think this is really important too. You know, I think when you get started with Twitter uh, in a professional capacity, you can have this viewpoint. Well, I'm just going to dabble in this, so you're you're not really thinking about it long term. But the years go by. I've been tweeting professionally. It's been 
I don't know, seven, eight, nine years now. And, and so, so what Sarah says is like, for example, you know, don't use your name with maybe a course that you're in or with a year um, behind it. Right. And actually I've seen this with the courses, maybe you're an undergrad saying like, oh, okay, I'm going to be Josh bio 401 because I had to do this for my bio class. Well, that may be cool this semester, but once you're in grad school, or you've graduated with your PhD, you're not going to like that. So, so really think about your Twitter username, um, as Sarah mentioned, as part of your professional social media identity. Um, and you actually can change your, your Twitter handle um, at any time. So don't get too stressed about this. Um, but it is helpful if you pick something that you think is going to be relevant, not just today, but in a few years as well. Yeah, I was going to say, is it more like a tattoo? But no, you can change it. Uh, it. It should just be, probably it should just be your name. That would be the best thing if you're using this for an actual, an actual academic usage. All right, Josh, the next piece of advice or, or pieces of advice, the guidelines for choosing a profile photo. And I think these are really useful. So you rightly teased me for having an egg for a long time. And now I have a less than professional Simpsons picture. But what Sarah describes is using a professional looking headshot for your profile picture. And it doesn't need to be, she doesn't say professional photo, she says professional looking. Um, So this might be the same photo that you use on a LinkedIn account or uh, on some of your other social media. And she really recommends using the same photo for all of them so that you kind of establish this visual identity on the web for who you are. And uh, it should be a picture of you, mostly your face, no sunglasses, what are some of the other guidelines, Josh, that you that stood out to you? Yeah, I think you want your Twitter profile photo to be very obviously you. Be a good depiction of who you are and what you look like. And and another reason this can be useful is I've actually had a lot of success meeting people that I would in my professional network that I would not have met if not for Twitter. And if you can believe this, Dan, if you can remember, we used to do things like go to conferences in other cities and interact with people face-to-face. Yeah, it was this really, people listening may not believe this, but there was this time where you would do things like this. And I can remember what was really great are a lot of these people professionally that I had interacted with on Twitter. I would see them at a conference and I would instantly recognize them because they had a very clear profile photo that I had seen many times. And the same for me. Um, she points out to make sure that your your background is pretty clean and spare. So you don't want to have a picture of you next to the Parthenon or a picture of you hugging your pet or something crazy going on in the background. This is uh, meant to highlight your face, not whatever trip you took uh, in 2013. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'll point out too, Dan, um, maybe you don't have a professional headshot. Um, this might be something for you to consider doing. Um, one thing that I have seen some graduate programs or departments offer or if this is something that maybe you're part of a professional organization at your school and you've got a little bit of a budget and you're trying to look for something to spend it on. I've seen some organizations actually spend their money on hiring a photographer for a few hours and then their members can come to campus and and actually get professional headshots. Or maybe that's something your department would be willing to do. You could bring up for them because really having one having one good headshot can be really useful as a graduate student, not just online, but as you kind of market yourself going through your career search. Yeah, I mean, as a former photographer, Josh, I, I do feel like the iPhone or whatever modern phone can take really high quality pictures. And she mentions this. Um, I don't know if you've played around with the portrait mode in iPhone, but like it can blur the background for you. You're going to look great. 
stand near a wall, and I think uh, that's going to be just as good as a professional headshot. But you're going to have to have your friend take it. Don't don't do a weird selfie where you make duck face. <laughs> yeah, portrait mode is your friend. All right, Josh. Well, the next one is really mysterious to me, and uh, I hope you can explain it. But the next piece of advice is to fill in your bio. And I have seen a lot of bios, a lot of Twitter bios, and they kind of always annoy me because they always say the same thing about views are my own. It's like, well, who else's views would they be? But but she kind of explains this here. Can you talk about how you fill out a bio? Yeah, Dan, I think I think the bio doesn't have to be complicated. What I like to see in a professional bio, if it's someone that I'm trying to learn more about professionally... I might click on their bio for the purpose of just really quickly seeing, okay, where do they work? What do they do? What are, What is their sort of main interest? So the way I've approached my, my Twitter bio on my professional Twitter is really just to list, these are like the main parts of my job. Like this is where I work. This is what I do. So um, I work at this organization. I do this, you know, like I run this program. You know, these are kind of the big things that I do. If those big things also have Twitter handles, you can actually link those um, in your Twitter bio. But I almost, I have utilized it almost like it's if I distilled my current employment into like 160 characters. <laughs> you can look at that and you can see where I work and what are the big things that I do. That That's for me because I think professionally, that's what you're looking for on Twitter is you're trying to see who are these people, where are they, what do they do? Yeah, so if you are interested in a particular field in microbiology or studying uh, you know, mouse behavior or whatever it happens to be, that can go in your bio. Um, she talks about how, and this, is, this, is, this views are mine thing always bothered me because I really didn't understand it, but she explains it, that in some cases the university or the employer will have a requirement that that if you are talking on social media, you need to make clear that you are not representing the university or the employer. And so um, you can look up these rules, presumably at your university, to find out whether you need to have that kind of statement. But that's where this comes from, that people say, these are my views, I'm not representing the university's position on something. Yeah, and I think you certainly can look that up. My general feeling on this, I think this becomes more and more important kind of the higher up the chain you go in a, in a company um, or at an institution. You know, my general thought is if you're a graduate student at a large university, no one really thinks you are representing the official yeah, views of the university. You know, even in my previous employment at a large university, I didn't bother with the views of my own because I felt like it was pretty obvious at a university. Lots of people have lots of ideas and I'm not speaking for my university. Um, however, my new position at and more of a private um, organization. I did actually include that just to be, I think, to be careful that, all right, I'm speaking from Josh the person. I am not, and I think especially depending on your position and if you're tweeting on topics that are very related to the types of things your organization or your business does, you might want to be a little more clear on that separation. And I would say if you're in business, I would say businesses and companies are going to be a little more particular about their brand and what their employees say than a university, which typically are pretty used to their academics spouting off whatever ideas they have yeah. at will. So, Well, that's a, that's a very useful distinction. Yeah, can't hurt to check them. The next piece of advice is, I think, my favorite in the whole topic, because this is where uh, 
I think you can get yourself into trouble or really make a great uh, a great presence on Twitter. And and the piece of advice is to make some personal rules that guide your posts. And so what she's talking about is the personal rules will dictate what types of t- topics you are willing to talk about. So uh, for her, she wanted to post mostly about science communication and women in STEM. Um, she wanted to follow people that were in STEM and medical fields. She wanted to keep it professional and minimize personal posts and to limit politics. So I think when you get onto Twitter, you know, the world is your oyster. You could tweet about the game, the sports team that you love the most and what your kid did on Thursday and that your dog pooped on the carpet and here's some science stuff. And yes, you can do all those things, but if you are trying to represent a certain theme or topic or to be recognized in your field you want to make some rules about which of those things you're going to put on Twitter and which of those things you might text to your friend or put on Instagram or some other channel that separates your personal life from your professional one. I think that is what most fundamentally changed how I used Twitter a number of years ago was when I first, first got on there was in the very early days. It was when, you know, Facebook was still fairly new as well and Twitter just started. And so I think, I initially viewed it as, oh, this is just another social media platform where you can share what you had for dinner uh, with your actual IRL friends. And what really changed how I utilized it is when I realized, oh, you know, I can easily create multiple different Twitter handles for different interests and reasons. And so I actually rebranded, renamed my main Twitter as my professional Twitter and Similar to how Sarah, what Sarah recommends here, I unfollowed all of the other hobby stuff and friends and things that weren't related to my science and my work, and then followed these other folks that I was interested in or wanted to know what they do on a professional level, and then only tweeted on topics from that account about things that were related to my profession and my science. And what I love about this, Dan, and what made this more enjoyable was... You know, you probably have other interests, and Twitter can be really useful about things that aren't science and aren't professional. But then you can, you know what, create that other Twitter handle that maybe you do have a picture of yourself as a, as a, cartoon a character, char- yeah. <laughs> as a cartoon character, and you follow your favorite sports teams or or board game content or poodle breeding or whatever it is you're interested in. Man, you nailed it on all three, Josh, all my favorite interests. (laughs) And you know, what's really cool is the Twitter app makes it really easy to switch between your accounts. So what I often will do is I'll be like, hmm, what am I in the mood to learn about or to read about right now? And so sometimes I'm like, oh, well, you know, I'm in professional mode. I want to see what my professional contacts are up to and what's going on in the science world. So I'll bring up my science Twitter, but then sometimes I really don't want to hear about what's going on in science. I want to know what's going on in sports and board games and all that. So I'll pull up a different Twitter account and just read about that content. And so it really helps you to utilize Twitter, I think, in a more effective way, too, to have different accounts. And and putting some of those borders up, those walls up between your personal and your professional, I think, is, is great advice. Um, some of her other personal rules, she talks about only retweeting high-quality posts uh, to limit retweeting a ton of things in a row. And and so it, what she points out is you're not going to have these rules on day one, but as you interact, as you engage with other people on Twitter, you're going to notice, hey, I really love it when somebody congratulates another scientist on their work. I think that's really positive, or I liked it when somebody did it for me. And so one of my rules is going to be, 
I'm going to congratulate other people for their achievements. But these will develop over time, and that's okay. But but having that list, having a, a defined set of rules, you can refer back to it when you say, should I tweet this stupid joke? Well, I probably shouldn't because it doesn't fit into the things that I said I was going to talk about. Um, and, and I think having that as a, as a grounding piece is going to be really helpful to keep you on the track, on, on the rails. You know, Dan, one of the hardest things to do when you're first starting out on Twitter is it can be really intimidating. And I think posting that first tweet or responding to someone else's tweet uh, can be kind of a big hurdle. Uh, you know, you don't want to say the wrong thing. But I think one of the things that that Sarah does suggest is actually a really easy way to just kind of ease yourself into the conversation that congratulating other people. There are a lot of people sharing their accomplishments there, like getting a paper published, getting a grant funded, getting a good score. If it's somebody in your field or, you, or just you don't know the person, you say like, oh, you know what? That looks like it's another grad student at another university who's in my field. They got a paper in this journal that I know is a really great journal. That's really cool that they did that. I'm going to just write, hey, that's great. Congratulations. And sometimes, you know what? They may follow you and you've made that one little interaction, that one little positive interaction. You've made a little bit of a connection that might grow from there. So I think that's great advice that she gives to do that. And that kind of leads into the next piece of advice, uh, which is another way to get started. And this is to follow high value accounts. So the best way I think to learn Twitter is to read tweets, is to follow other people that that you think are important or saying interesting things. And by following them for a little while, you'll get the sense for the types of things people talk about, the types of tweets that you really value, that other people value that they comment on. And so uh, tell us some, some of the what you would consider a high value account, Josh. Well, I think that's going to be different for different people. I think high value would just be accounts or individuals who post things that you find interesting. And if, if someone is constantly posting discussion starters on topics that you're really interested in, and maybe they have established a really large following. And so when they post a question or an idea that facilitates discussion, Maybe it's not just the specific post that they make, but the entire discussion of the community they've built around their Twitter account, right? So that can be high value. Um, so yeah, I, I would say that's just, you'll start to determine their accounts that you really are excited when you see a tweet from them, right? It goes to the top. You really stop to read it. You read the conversation around it. Um, and you know, also it's probably worth saying, it's okay to unfollow accounts too. So if, you know, maybe you get all excited and you follow like 50 accounts on day one and then you realize, uh, you know, there's a few, I don't really get a lot of value out of their, their content or this wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. You can always unfollow too. Yeah. You're not committed for life to these people that you followed on Twitter. It is not a marriage contract. Sarah goes on to talk a little bit about places to get started, especially if you are um, a scientist or you're interested in, in scientific topics or communication, you know, besides just people. Cause I mean, you aren't, you aren't going to know all the people that might be one of the reasons why you're starting a professional scientific Twitter is because you want to increase your network. You want to learn who are some other people in the field, other faculty, other grad students, other postdocs who are doing this work. So a good place to start is, 
as Sarah mentions, you know, follow journals that you and your lab publishes in. There's scientific news outlets, maybe your own university and other universities that are your peers, colleagues you know, maybe search for other faculty who are in your field that you have seen published papers that you really like. Search for their names. Maybe a, a, a growing number of faculty uh, and scientists are on Twitter now. That can be a good place to start. And I usually have a growing dislike of social media algorithms. But in this case, the social media algorithm is kind of your friend. As Twitter kind of learns what you're interested in, (laughs) as you start following more accounts, it will start suggesting more intelligently other accounts that you might like. You know, it'll see, oh, well, other people who follow these similar accounts to you also kind of like these accounts. And and sometimes it actually does a pretty good job at suggesting those. But it can only do that if you give it something to start with. So I think Sarah has some great advice for starting out which accounts to follow. Well, let's talk about that first tweet. And she spends a little bit of time on helping get over the paralysis that you might feel when you sit down to that blank tweet box. She provides a little template here to introduce yourself on your first post. And it goes something like, hi, I'm Daniel, and I'm a PhD candidate working on cell biology that will help us understand and then fill in the societal relevance. I joined Twitter to expand my network or share science or meet new people or whatever it happens to be. So by kind of filling in the blanks on this template, you'll have a first tweet and release it into the world. And I bet you nobody will see it because if nobody follows you yet, that's okay. But it'll be there. You, you will have accomplished that hurdle of, of sending your first tweet. You know, Dan, what I have seen when people do that, there are a lot of negatives to social media and interacting online in general. Twitter is no different. But what I've seen in the, in the science Twitter world is people are usually very affirming to someone new, especially a student, Uh, who is an aspiring scientist, a scientist in training, who goes on, introduces themselves, mentions what kind of science they're into. There's usually a really positive outpouring for that. So I wouldn't be afraid to do that. I think it's a great, great idea to just introduce yourself. And Sarah gives a great formula for doing that. Josh, let's talk a little bit about how you can share your research and your ideas. Um, I know that a lot of people are uncomfortable, especially scientists, are uncomfortable with the idea of self-promotion. You know, if I publish a paper, I'm proud of it, but I don't feel like I should be the one advertising that. You know, I, I just want it to take off on its own for everybody to notice and to be wowed by my research. But what we're seeing in this world of social media and with Twitter, academic Twitter specifically, you may be the one that has to promote that paper so that it gets picked up and people notice it. And how do you feel about that when you have to do it? I think it's great. I think that is a big advantage and a big reason to actually get involved somewhat on Twitter as a scientist is so you can share your work. PubMed is not a social media platform <laughs> yet. And, and, you know, there's so much volume of new papers coming out all the time that sometimes you can feel like your really hard work and effort that you put into doing experiments, organizing them, writing them up. Uh, going through reviewer comments, and then finally you get your paper published. You have that amazing link to that actual (laughs) publication. And then what? Who sees it? How do people know? So Twitter actually gives you a great platform to put that out there in the world, to say, look, hey, our, our work on macrophages in the gut 
is finally out there. I'm really excited about it. Here it is. And I think it's a great way, especially once you have sort of created this little community of your niche of science Twitter where, oh, you know, I study this type of neuroscience and now I have all these followers who also are kind of into that same kind of neuroscience. You can very quickly share with them uh, this interested audience that, hey, I have a new paper out. Why don't you read it? Um, It's also, by the way, a good way for you to kind of stay on top of the relevant literature too in a more engaging way than just setting up a PubMed search, in my opinion. You know, I can say personally, Dan, you know, in more recent years when I was doing some some research on graduate training and graduate education. As I've talked about on the show, Dan, we we did a paper on graduate admissions and the GRE in particular that, you know, our study along with others kind of led to some changes in the usage of the GRE. I don't think that would have happened as quickly. I don't think that information in those studies would have disseminated as quickly if not for the fact that I was out there tweeting them and they picked up a little steam and they got retweeted and they got shared in other departments and other places. I don't think that would have happened if that paper would have just been published and was sitting there in a database and hopefully people will find it. So That's a, a great example. And and you, you also used your Twitter account to highlight the schools and universities and programs that didn't require the GRE. And I remember, you know, it was before the research came out, I think, you were already tracking that trend and people came to your Twitter account to find that list. And when they saw that you had it, they would say, hey, did you know that this my program doesn't require it either? And so it was a public place to keep track of this change in the way that admissions is working. And I think you're right. It, it definitely sped it along by having it in that forum. Yeah, that is absolutely true. So I think it just highlights that, that Twitter can be a great tool um, for you to advance and share the research you're doing, uh, but also maybe other some some causes or some organizations you're trying to promote or, or some other things you're trying to get done. Uh, it just can help you connect with a wider audience that's into the same things that you're into. Sarah covers a lot of the finer details of Twitter, Josh. She talks about the use of hashtags and what they mean. I think they can be a little bit mysterious for people Uh, when you're first getting started. But she's got some great advice there, advice on using threads and emojis. One piece she points out uh, later in the article is something that I wanted to talk about because I've I've seen this happen. Um, She says to avoid sarcasm. And she says, if your audience has to infer your tone or needs context to find a tweet funny, you should reconsider whether it's appropriate to post publicly. Some jokes are best delivered offline. So uh, I had a friend who was, I think, an adjunct professor at a liberal arts college, and he posted a joke. Uh, It was a sarcastic joke. It was a comment. Um, It had a political bent to it. But I think he posted it privately to maybe a group of people in Twitter, and it got picked up somehow. Somebody screenshotted it, took it over to Facebook. Uh, It was not received well. The media picked it up, and... Uh, he's basically fired from his job for this joke. Now, depending on your political leanings, the joke was fairly funny. Like it was, it was tongue in cheek and sarcastic, but you could certainly take it in a different context and be very offended. And he lost his job over it at a university. So uh, I think her advice is good here. If you are in doubt whether everybody in the world is going to get your joke, I would leave it out. And that's hard for me to say as a person who likes to say stupid things and tell jokes. 
I think that's a I think that's an important cautionary tale, Dan. And, and Sarah does go into a little go into this a little bit. It is really important to remember for professional Twitter. A really important part of setting up a professional Twitter is linking it to your real identity, your real name, your real profession. But along with that, I think kind of goes back to and not forgetting what this account is for and what it's not for, and that it is public and it is going to be there not just linked to you during your current employment or your current stage of training, but also as you work towards transitioning to your next steps. You know, the more public you become, (laughs) you know, the more uh, scrutiny you might invite upon yourself, good or bad. You know, I think that having a really effective professional Twitter presence can actually open a lot of doors for you by giving you high visibility that you might not have otherwise. Um, But also, the other edge of that sword is it can um, bring on some negative scrutiny, too. Dan, I think it's also worth mentioning one last thing that that is related, but that Sarah mentions um, and actually writes a whole additional article later on. And that is that that social media and online harassment and, and bullying and trolling is absolutely a real thing, too. This is, for better or worse, a public venue. And... So Sarah has some advice that I would certainly echo. Twitter has some tools uh, where you can block accounts, you can mute accounts. You know, you don't have, Sarah mentioned, you don't have to respond to every tweet that is a response to your your thread. What I have found, Dan, is on the rare occasion, you can't always predict it, that you tweet something. And, you know, you might be tweeting and usually like five people interact with your tweet. Then suddenly, for some reason, you tweet something that just takes off and like hundreds of people are retweeting it. And you'll find that the first, you know, 50 or so may be relevant and your followers and on topic. But then as it continues to go, you start getting lower and lower quality replies that are more and more off topic and more and more negative, really. You're not obligated to reply to everyone. And don't be afraid to to early and often utilize the block button. It's there for a reason. If there is anyone interacting with your account or your tweets in a way that you don't like, or even proactively, if you see accounts interacting with other people's tweets in ways that you don't like, content that's not just not adding value but is detracting from your usage of Twitter, feel free to block and move on. But we'd be remiss not to say that Trolling and online harassment is truly uh, truly one piece of it, too. But our hope in doing this episode today is a lot of people have found some really great networking opportunities, have made some really great connections that have opened a lot of doors through utilizing Twitter. And I think there are ways to do it effectively and hopefully safely that can be be really positive for you in your career. Yeah, that, that's helpful and a, and a good caution. Um, the last piece of advice I wanted to share from our article, and there's lots more. People should read the whole thing. She mentions that you need to include your Twitter handle in places where you list other contact information. So if you're going to give a talk, put it on your last slide. If you have an email signature, put it there. Nobody knows that you're on Twitter if you don't tell them you're on Twitter. And so if they are also part of academic Twitter, they may want to follow you. And that's how you can make some of those contacts. Absolutely true, Dan. Well, just wanted to thank everybody for listening. Hopefully this was helpful, um, gave you a place to start. Like you mentioned, Dan, we really recommend everybody check out the show notes. You can look at Sarah's full article, A Beginner's Guide to Joining Academic Twitter. Um, We will post the link. Lots of great information there. And uh, if you get on Twitter, give us a follow at (laughs) HelloPhD. Send us a tweet. And say hello. Send us a tweet. 
we would we we'll follow you back. I tell you what, yeah, if you send us a tweet that you created a, an account after hearing this episode, and we will follow you back. Awesome. Well, Josh, Twitter is a great way to ask questions or give us topic ideas. Uh, you, as you said, it's at HelloPhD. You can also email us, podcast at HelloPhD.com. If you like the show, please share it with somebody. Share it with uh, your department, with a friend, with another grad student. That's how shows grow, their listeners. Uh, and if you'd like to support us, you can become a patron. Just go to our website, HelloPhD.com, click the Become a Patron button, or visit Patreon.com slash HelloPhD. We'd appreciate the corona money, uh, and thanks to the ongoing support from our patrons. Geez, Dan, it wasn't until you said that that actually occurred to me corona and coronavirus are like right there. Uh... I believe corona, <laughs> the beer, is aware of that correlation. Yeah, it, did. it didn't even occur to me that I'm sitting here drinking corona in the midst of the, uh, the latest wave of the coronavirus pandemic. Well, hopefully this one tamps down quickly and everybody out there is safe and healthy. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Dan. Well, it has been a pleasure as always, and we will see everybody next time. See you next time.